Radio. St. Peter, the First Pope. A talk by Bishop Columba Macbeth Green at the Immaculata Mission School 2015, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. My little talk. This is going to be an interesting talk because I don't quite know where it's going to go. <laughs> Which is pretty well commonplace for most of my talks. We're going to talk about St. Peter and his role as a chief of the apostles, but more, as the first pope. And to get an understanding of what this really means and what it meant to the early church, you've got to do a little bit of history of salvation, but very, very quickly because we don't want to bore you because it's, I don't want you falling asleep in front of me. But you know that Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, was coming and foretold and prophesied to come and establish the new kingdom, wasn't he? The kingdom of David again. Because for the Jewish people, that kingdom of David was the high point up to that stage of salvation history. And they wanted it back because the kingdom of David was instituted by God and he was the anointed one and he got all the tribes of Israel together. He founded this great kingdom. So he got there and he picked a council. He picked a person from each of the 12 tribes. So he had 12 of them. That, were, that was his ruling council. And later on, his son Solomon became king. There were more peoples besides those 12 tribes. There were some Moabites and other tribes around there that weren't Jewish, but they were brought in to Judaism and made Jewish. So he had to have some more of these counsellors. That's fair enough. That was the Davidic kingdom. And it was the high point of salvation history up at that time because it encompassed all the peoples. It was bringing in other peoples as well as the Jewish people. That's interesting for a start. Just remember that. You should start to be thinking, oh, 12 counsellors he started with. Then it multiplied as more people came in. Hmm, 12. Put that in the back of your mind. Something else the Davidic kingdom had, which was really, really interesting for us today, they did, as many of the other kingdoms did around the Middle East at the time, they had a key bearer, someone that had a key, that was given a key. Now, the reason that someone was given a key was because the king, pretty rough area at those times, lived in his palace. And he lived in his palace with his wives. His harem. We know um, King Solomon had more than 600 of them. His wives. Now, when the king goes to sleep in his personal chambers and so forth, he's quite vulnerable, isn't he? So he'd have to lock his door. And they would lock the door. But if something happened, someone had to come in or an emergency of the kingdom, someone had to have the key. So the key was given to the steward or master of the king's household. And he would be the one to have the key. 
Now, the keys are not like our little keys, your car keys that we have today. No. They were wooden keys about at least a metre long with big bits coming out and they were round with big bits of wood and chunks to come out because the, the locks that they used to put them were big round locks. So they're about a metre long, quite substantial keys. And so the master of the king's household, or his steward, got the keys, the key to the king's bedchamber. And that was his badge of office. He would walk around with this key over his shoulder. And he had not to let it out of his sight because it was his badge of office. In other words, he was the one that the king trusted 100% with his life because he gave him the key to his own room. But that also meant that he was then the steward or the prime minister of the kingdom. If he had the keys, he had the king's authority in that kingdom. It was a symbol of total authority, the king's authority, to have the key. Um, The ancient Egyptians had this custom. And you might remember your Bible stories. Remember Joseph and his technicolour dream coat and all that? And remember how he was sold to slavery and he was over in Egypt. And the Egyptians thought he was pretty good. And the pharaoh gave him a high office. And his brothers, who were starving back in Israel, came to Egypt because there was plenty of grain there and they wanted grain. And people that wanted grain had to come before Joseph, who sat on a big throne. And Joseph decided whether you got the grain or not. He was the master of the Pharaoh's household. He had the Pharaoh's keys. He was the prime minister of Egypt. He was the most trusted person in Egypt. We read in Scripture, in Prophet Isaiah 22.22 and following, about these people that have the keys. And we had one by the name of Shebna. He wasn't real good. And so the keys were taken off him and given to Eliakim. So this was a Davidic kingdom. So the one who had the keys was the prime minister and had the king's authority. He was more important than the 12 councillors and the other councillors in the kingdom. And of course, the Davidic kingdom had to have those elements. We could go in and mention that another aspect of the Davidic kingdom was that the queen in the Davidic kingdom was, of course, the king's mother, which is a bit unusual in other places. It wasn't the king's wife, because he had 600. You're going to have problems there picking one of those. So yeah. <laughs> the other 599 might be really impressed. So it was the king's mother. So keep that in mind too. So let's fast forward. And here we have our Lord. And he's standing there with St. Peter. And he said, Peter, on this rock, where he was standing, there was a huge rock. And he said, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. In other words, what he was saying to St. Peter, you are my prime minister. You are my vicar. And that's an important word. The vicar means that you represent me. If you're my vicar, 
You are my ambassador. You represent me. You speak for me. And that's one of the titles today about the Pope and the Vicar of Christ. You speak for me. That comes from these keys. So the Jewish people at the time, they're, wow, he's establishing the kingdom. He's got 12 apostles. He's got his master of the king's household, the keeper of the keys, St. Peter, the, the prime minister. He's established that. Wow, the new kingdom has been instituted. Very, very important, those keys. And when our Lord said to Peter, whatever you bind or loose on earth and heaven, that's an interesting term. Binding and loosing was used by the Jewish rabbinical scholars to designate someone who had the power to bind or loose or the authority to interpret the law and put a binding on the old law and said, you can't eat that. That's a binding. And then the other one would come, I loose you from that binding. So it, it was a signifier of religious authority over the law. Very, very interesting. So we can really see that bit of history and the Gospels, when Jesus actually took Peter aside, that's earth-shattering. We say Peter's the first pope. Yeah, that's right. The vicar of Christ, the prime minister that has Christ's authority. Christ is the king. Christ is the king. He's giving the keys to this fella? Saint Peter? He was no saint then. <laughs> he was Pete, right? <laughs> and that's interesting, to, uh, important for us to remember. He was a fisherman. He was just a fisherman. Wasn't, wasn't the brightest of the fishermen either. <laughs> you know, they tell him to go out and put his nets down when he knew there was no fish, and he did it. He, he, <laughs> he wasn't, that, you know, wasn't that good a fisherman, obviously. <laughs> so this fella, this fisherman, Christ is giving him this most awesome supernatural power in the church. And because we know when he instituted with the keys, it was an office. Some people say, oh, well, yeah, St. Peter might have been uh, the, the important one. But when he died, where does it say it went on to the next pope? Well, it was an office. The keys were an office. Like the prime minister. One prime minister dies, the keys go to another one, get passed to another, and the office continues. It's an office of government. So obviously it goes to someone else, and that it did. And then we got passed down till we get to Pope Francis today. So this is the awesomeness of what God's actually done. And he's done that so we can have unity in our church and the body of Christ on earth. We have this unity, which if you look around the world and Christianity, when there's so many divisions, we think, we sometimes, we, we've got to look and say, wow, what a blessing. We have a leader. We have a unity. And our Lord knew this. He knew what we're like better than we know what we're like. And he said, if you don't have a vicar, 
you don't have something else, I'm going to have to come down there myself and stay there. Okay? But he didn't. He left his vicar of Christ on earth. Why, I wonder? Why didn't Jesus just stay there? Sit on his big throne and just made sure everyone did what they were supposed to do. He male, he was God, he could do anything. But it's not his way of doing things. How does God work in salvation history? Does he do everything himself? Or does he pick humble, and maybe not so humble, sinners, the lowly, the weak, and does he use them to manifest his power? He does, doesn't he? He's done that all the time. So naturally, he say, he, in other words, he gets us human beings to cooperate with him in our own salvation, which is a great honour as well. And it's a great responsibility. So he's done that with St Peter. So he thought, now, who am I going to pick to be the first pope? Am I going to pick the brightest, the most intelligent, the greatest rabbi, the greatest teacher, the scribe? Hmm, no, because they might think, well, it's his own ability, that's why he's got that. People may not see God working through that person. So I'm going to pick and call Pete. <laughs> the fisherman. Now, you've got to imagine Pete. He would have gone out fishing as usual, not going real good, and you could probably imagine... He would have said his prayers in the morning, probably, and he probably was jostling his way with the other fishing boats out in the Sea of Galilee. One cut him off. He probably told him what he thought of him and moved him out there. He was a fisherman. I don't know if you've ever been around fishermen, but in my experience of fishermen, they aren't the sort of, please, take your boat. Please go for it. Good morning, how are you? <laughs> Lovely to see you again. I'm sorry you got my fishing spot. I was heading there first, you realise. You shouldn't have cut me off. But that's okay. That's not my experience of fishermen. They're pretty rough fellows. St Peter was a fisherman. But he was a fisherman with a bit of heart. And this is important. He wasn't perfect. He was doing his normal daily life. He loved God and he was waiting for the Messiah but he would have been average. They would, and everyone else was going to say, oh, Pete, seventh. Well, you should have been a Pharisee, Pete. I could see that. You've got it marked on there. You could have been a scribe where you talk. No, he was just a worker, a fisherman. And then he had this encounter with Jesus and Jesus said, come follow me, become a fisher of man. And what did Pete do? He, he didn't go, uh, let me think about that. What did he do? He said, okay. Dropped everything and followed him. Responded. He was open enough in his heart so when the Lord called, he could just go, yes, I'm yours. Did he really know what he was getting into? No. <laughs> no. Did our Lord tell him what he was going to be getting into? No. 
The Lord often doesn't tell you all the consequences of your yes. He doesn't want to frighten us too much. He wants the yes first. So St. Peter says yes out of that love and devotion, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. The most perfect follower of Jesus, wasn't he? No. Because he was Pete, wasn't he? <laughs> Just because you respond to the call of the Lord, you don't doesn't make you instantaneously Saint Peter. You're still Pete, but you happen to be Pete following the Lord, which is you're on the way, aren't you? So Saint Peter or Pete was on his way. He was following the Lord. Did he make mistakes? Yes, he made a couple of doozies, didn't he, really? <laughs> I mean, if he was working for a company, he probably would have got fired. <laughs> I mean, and he was very um, impetuous. He wasn't a thinker. He didn't sit down and work everything out before he did it. You know, he wanted to chop your ear off and he had a sword and he thought it was a good <laughs> idea. He just, whoops, who would do it? He, 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 he was a person that had this, this heart. He just went out and, and he did things. But remember when he denied our Lord. you imagine that? This is Pete. Pete has been made the vicar of Christ on earth. Now, when Pete was getting the keys and having Jesus tell him all this, being a good Jewish person and knowing his religion, he would be saying... He's given me the keys. He's making me Prime Minister. He's making me the head of this. Wow. That's pretty good. He really trusts me. I'm the most trusted one of the Lord. And then what happened? He denied him three times. His most trusted one. He knew he was the most trusted one. He had the keys. And he denied our Lord. Could you just imagine how gut-wrenching that would have been for him when he realised what he'd done? He didn't sit down and think, oh, I'm going to deny our Lord. He just did it out of fear. He was afraid, wasn't he? He might get caught as one of his followers, might get into trouble, might go to jail, might end up crucified himself. That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? I... Even, even bishops of Kenya Forbes would probably be a bit scared in that sort of situation. So he was fallible. He was scared. And he let our Lord down by denying him. So after he denied our Lord, he said, well, this, is, this Vicar of Christ business is obviously not for me. I'm going back fishing. This is, I knew I was no good. I was stupid to follow him in the first place. He picked the wrong bloke. I'm going home. He didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He came back in tears. He cried. He was so sorry for letting our Lord down. And he made it up with his triple profession of love for our Lord. He said, do you love me? Three times. He said, yes, yes, yes. And the Lord took him back. He received the Lord's forgiveness. He asked for the Lord's mercy. And, you know, I think that's when 
this is this is the Columban theology here. Don't quote you won't find this thing out. But that's where Bishop Columba would start uh, start to think he's Saint Peter because he asked for mercy and he received God's mercy, the mercy of Jesus. He acknowledged that he failed, but that didn't deter him. He didn't take his bat and ball and go home. He trusted in God's mercy. And he trusted in God's mercy and his power and his grace that, hey, even though I failed, he can still use me. He can transform me. Old Pete, the fisherman. And that is a really, really important message because sometimes in our own lives, we can think, well, what can we do? What are we? I mean, how many times you, you get fired up, you go to a thing like this, you pray, you worship, you get so close to the Lord, you go back home or something, something happens and you fail him. You slip and you think, <laughs> what was the point of all that? I thought I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought uh, now I'm back to, work, back to square one. It's all right. It happened to St. Peter. That's the important thing for us. God loves to work through our human weakness. Never forget that. And when you look at the popes, you read the history of the pope, some of those were very pretty weak. They did, uh, they had, some of them had sinful lives. They made mistakes. But they kept their initial obedience and perseverance in following the Lord. That's what the Lord asks of us, to persevere in obedience to him. Now, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I've been asked by mother to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit of a testimony of my vocation and how I really see and identify with St. Peter and his little journey. I was born, bred on a farm out in western New South Wales in the diocese of... That's right. <laughs> and I was told at school that I had to leave at year 10 as soon as possible because I was too dumb to be able to do anything else. <laughs> and... I had, I had three of my teachers. They all told my parents that probably the best that's ever going to happen to him, he might be a farm worker out there, and that's about it. So that's what I was told going to school. But I believed I had a vocation to the priesthood. And I really, as time went on, it really got stronger and stronger in my heart. My family weren't particularly religious, but they did one thing, one thing, amazing. They went to Sunday Mass. That's what they did. They went to Sunday Mass. Not five times out of ten, not seven times out of ten, not nine times out of ten, a hundred percent they went to Sunday Mass. I could never remember any time we missed Sunday Mass, not once. Ever. That's what they did. So I got used to doing that. And that was, and as my dad used to say, who didn't talk about religion, he said, that's the least we can do for God. 
Look what he's done for us. Sunday Mass. That's what he wants. You've got to go. And we will. And he did that. So that's got me, as an early stage, into knowing and being obedient and persevering in that little bit of faith. It was just Sunday Mass. Later on at school, I decided to go to the vocation director and say, I want to be a priest. And the vocation director said, well, you can't go just after school. You're too young. You've got to get some experience in your life. You've got to test your vocation. So I went, oh, okay, all right. So I went home and said, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to join the army. <laughs> that should sort it out. You want to test it? I'll give it some testing. So I joined the army. Play, uh, I was in the audiophonic warfare unit. You know what that is? Sound as a weapon? Didn't you know Australia had that? Special corps that uses um, sound as a weapon. Audiophonic warfare unit. Other people call it the pipe band, but it's, I played the bagpipes in the army. But you know. <laughs> I think the audiophonic, um, back in those days, all the, all the band, pipe band, where they all said audiophonic warfare, unit, they said the girls liked that better than just saying they played the bagpipes. So, <laughs> audiophonic warfare unit. When I joined, the first thing I did was told all the other soldiers that I'm going to be a priest. Not only that, I'm going to join a monastery. I'm going to be a monk, a religious. And I told them all in the band. And then that got out to everyone else. And I told them something else. I'll test my finger. I said, one little thing. It's Saturday. And I said, Sunday tomorrow, I've got to get to Sunday Mass. And they said, well, we, we've got to exercise. We, we, no one's going out. The, we've got a church parade. The chaplain, he's Salvation Army. He does a church parade and says some prayers. You can do that on Sunday. That's all right. And I said, no, I'm going to Sunday Mass. I said, well, you can't. You haven't got leave to go to Sunday Mass. I'm going to Sunday Mass. I'm walking out those front gates to Sunday Mass. <laughs> and he said, well, you'll be arrested. You'll be AWOL. And I said, well, you can try. You're going to have to do that. <laughs> and I, gave, I said, I am going to Sunday Mass. And anyway, they reported up the line. I got called in Saturday afternoon to the colonel's office. Little, fresh, little, private audiophonic warfare unit bagpipe player. <laughs> so I walked in and, you know, our son, well, this is private. You want to go out to mass or something tomorrow, do you? I'm going out to church. And I said, yes, sir. That's part of my religion. I just attend mass every Sunday. And if I won't want to go to hell and want to go to heaven, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> And basically said, I am going there. And, and the colonel... Oh, thank you. The colonel looked at me and he said, we'll see about that. And he said, you're dismissed. So I walked out and I said, okay, righto. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> so... Sunday morning came, I had the, the nearest mass was at Ingleburn, church at Ingleburn in Sydney, and I said, righto, I'm going to have to, I can get out there and get a taxi down. Now, I worked out how I was going to get the mass out the front gates, and 
when I was just getting about ready to go, there was a knock on my uh, the little door in the band room, and the the bandmaster, you know, the sergeant came out and he says, he says, Robert, the 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 colonel staff car's outside, and the, you better come out. They want you. And I walked out, and here's the the colonel's driver, and says. So the colonel sent the car to take Private Green to Mass. <laughs> that was so cool, I tell you. So cool. Had the little flag on the front and the green staff going on. I'm sitting in the back. You shouldn't do this when you go to Mass. This is like, you know, when Pete was Pete before he was St. Peter, this is, this is me before I was father. As you so I took pride in my little private's uniform, pulling up the church at the staff car and everyone's looking at, who's this big wig? And I just stopped out and I said, yeah, I'll be back. I'll be back now. Just wait there, driver. <laughs> so I went to Mass. They picked me up at the army base and at that thing every Sunday to take me to mass with the uh, CO staff car. And when we were out exercise in the bush, up the Blue Mountains or up at Singleton, out in the bush, they would send a jeep and make sure the jeep had to go out through the bush while we were having live fire exercise, shooting up the Americans who were coming in and doing a mass. <laughs> I got to mass every Sunday. And they, they did that. So I thought, that's going to be good. Then I had, they had an old meeting of the um, battalion, 600. And the Salvation Army chaplain had heard that this is what I was going to do. And he had a prayer at the beginning. And then he called me up to come up and give a testimony in front of the 560-odd battalion of these soldiers. So I went up and told them I was going to be a priest. And what's that going to go into the monastery? Um, make vow of poverty, chastity and obedience. And I heard this... <gasps> That was an interesting reaction. I think they only heard the chastity bit in that. But <laughs> so um, after the army, I decided that date I was going to go. I went and joined. I joined um, the Franciscan order first. Then I was there for two years as a conventual Franciscan. Then I moved on and saw the light, and came to the Paulines. And when I left the Franciscans, my spiritual director said I still wanted religious life, called a religious, a religious priest. My uh, spiritual director said, whatever you do, do not, under any circumstances, join a Polish order. <laughs> whatever you do. He said, you will not survive in a Polish order. So I said, right, mental note. So I, was, um, I, I applied to join an order in France. Started to learn French, everything. And then one of the other uh, priest friends said, oh, you better just go and have a look back at, at Berrima, where the Paulines were, you know, the, our head monastery there. And I thought, no, I've been there. We went for a day trip when I was a uh, Franciscan postulant. And I remember saying to the other Franciscans when we left, if that was the last order in the world, I would never join the Paulines. <laughs> They lived in a tin shed. <laughs> Not for me. So I said, no, I've been there. And this priest convinced me to go back again before I go to France to make sure 
that it, I had nothing in Australia. So I went back and I said, yeah, I'm not real still living in a tin shed. Nothing much has changed here. And I went back and I went and prayed down at the grotto. They have a beautiful grotto of Our Lady. And Our Lady told me that this is where I had to be. In that order. In this order. And I thought, really? <laughs> Can you just confirm that for me? <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. Are you? I'll just make sure I got that right. And I prayed a bit away and I had this thing in my heart that this is where I was supposed to be, where she wanted me to be. And I said, well, okay, I will do that. I joined the order. I, I got through. I was one of the only novices. Others came and, and left. So, but I managed to, to hold fast because I was called. And so if you're called, you persevere. You get through the difficult times. You don't, you don't sort of, if something goes against you or you fail, you don't give up and go home. You'll be like St Peter. You try and amend, you, you say you're sorry and you ask the Lord for more help and you allow him to bring you gradually to that destination. So by God's grace, I got to ordination. But before that, I got, oh, it, God works in mysterious ways. Studying at the seminary, one of my um, our superior at the Pauline said, now, when you go home, keep away from the church in Forbes, your home church, because it could be an occasion of a temptation that you might want to actually join the diocese of Wilkenia Forbes. You've got to get it in your head, you'll never work in that diocese. You'll never go home and work in that. So best keep away from the church. So when you go home, visit mum, say mass in, in your own home. I never said mass in my own church. So I kept to what I was, what I was recommended there because I didn't want to, because I might love the people. They're my people, country people. I might want to go back. So I had to never go on back to Wilkenia Forbes. Get, get out. I don't want to hear about Wilkenia. <laughs> Got to the seminary in Wagga. The rector of the seminary was Bishop Brennan. He was a priest of the Wilkenia Forbes diocese before he was a bishop. And he found out I was from Forbes and he, he, he said, why aren't you on for the diocese? Why do you join a religious order? They need priests in that diocese. You should have been Wilkenia Forbes diocese. No, I'm not going near Wilkenia Forbes diocese, Bishop. That's, that, that's the end. And he always was on to me to become um, a priest for Wilkenia Forbes diocese. I became a priest. And in my um, Pauline uh, formation, I was basically formed with the idea that I would be in a monastery or a shrine, not working in a parish. I didn't want to work in a parish. No way. I left the Franciscans because they were working in parishes. <laughs> and my, my superior at the time in the Pauline said, we will not be working in a parish. We will not do parish work. I said, that suits me. <laughs> I were, did all my seminary training. I was ordained on... Saturday, first Mass Sunday, and I was put into the parish on Friday. <laughs> a little parish of Tarkata. So the first thing I had to do was work in a parish. So it was an eye-opener to me that God's ways are not our ways. We cannot dictate to God what we will do and how we will do it and when we will do it. Sometimes you just have to be obedient 
and be open to God's will and the way and to the doors that he opens in your life as a religious really really easy because we make a vow of obedience so if my superiors help me go out in the parish yes father you do that God's will so you're always looking for God's will in your life when I was working in that little parish we had a lot of road accidents fatalities around the town I was the only minister of religion I used to get called out by the fire brigade to help them they were parishioners at critical incidents and there were police and ambulance and then the police asked me to be a police chaplain their police chaplain because I would talk to them and we'd pray around there help them through really critical incidents and I said we got Buckley's I'll never be a police chaplain you know we don't do that my superior is pretty old-fashioned he's pretty there's no way he would allow to be a police chaplain and they said we really like you would you ask and I said well that's I'll ask I put it to him went to Father Augustine yes father the police have asked me to be a police chaplain down there for the local police and Father Augustine says why not (laughs) (laughs) and he followed that up with you be do And I went, wow. I would have put $100 on saying he would say, absolutely not. What you do, stupid things, are you? <laughs> you have enough to do in parish, you, 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 you know. But he said, yes, voice of God. You're obedient with that. And it's really, it, it's really, really important. Throughout my life and my vocation, you, you have to, you, it's the only thing that keeps me going is to know that you're called and God is leading you. And obedience is really, really important and perseverance. You don't know where life's taking you. I took um, you know, a great deal of heart in being a Pauline because one of the things in our order that I was told also that we don't have bishops, Pauline bishops, that we really don't take on ecclesiastical honours and there's only been a few bishops in the whole history of our order. Very extraordinary. So I said, well, at least I have to worry about being a bishop. <sighs> I work in a parish, but I don't have to be a bishop. And that didn't work out either. <laughs> and as, as I was coming to the end of my seminary training, and my, my superior, God bless him, Father Augustine, I was three weeks away from my final exams, comprehensive exams, to get my Bachelor of Theology, the seminary. And Father Augustine was going to pull me out before my exams. So I wouldn't have my Bachelor of Theology. And he wanted to put me in the parish. I said, oh, Father, I'd really like, just three weeks, I'd I'd really like to get my Bachelor of Theology and do my exams. And Father Augustine replied, what, you wants to be a bishop? <laughs> so I didn't do my exam. So I knew I had no chance of being a bishop because I didn't have a Bachelor of Theology. So then I became a um, rector of the shrine in Queensland, as Father said, and a police chaplain. Really good. No police chaplain's ever been made a bishop. So well and truly, no chance of becoming a bishop. And then I got the call to go down to Canberra to the nuncio. And the nuncio secretary, um, the charge d'affaires, got me in and sat me down and he read out a letter. And they read you out a letter from the Pope saying that you are appointed 
Pope has appointed you, seventh bishop of Kenya Forbes Diocese. Blah, 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 blah. God bless you, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and all that. And et cetera, et cetera. And, and I didn't hear much of the blah, blah. I, just, I was still stuck on appointed you, Kenya And then at the end of it, he finished up and says, Do you accept? Do you accept? Bishop Brennan in the seminary used to have a saying, those who want to be a bishop deserve to be one. It's probably <laughs> the worst. Probably, in a lot of ways, people would say, very negative. You've got so much responsibility. You've got, like St Peter, I can understand, you're a vicar of Christ. Are you kidding? You are a successor of the apostles. You, your responsibility is absolutely horrendously awesome and I knew what I was like and I'm just uh, I'm just a little fellow from the farm and to be told to do something like that all I wanted to do was to jump up and run outside that and keep running <laughs> I did not want to be definitely no way in the world but I made a vow of obedience, didn't I? To God. And I've always followed what my superiors have asked me because that's how God speaks to me, through the church, through my um, legitimate superiors. And this is the Pope, the Vicar of Christ on earth, appointing me to be a bishop and asking me, do I accept? The bloke with the keys with Christ's authority on earth, has appointed me and asking me, do I accept? And I told uh, the Monsignor, I said, well, I've made a vow of obedience. Monsignor, I've got no choice. I have to accept, don't I? And his reply said, I thought you would say that. So here I am, um, the Bishop of Wilkenia Forbes. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I don't, I don't think I'm supposed to. I don't think St Peter knew what he was doing either when he started off. It's something you grow. The, the whole, it's not whether you know what you're doing. It's whether you are willing to follow and not to give up and to give your life to the Lord, but be prepared prepared to step out of your comfort zone because that's what the Lord will ask you to do. He's done it every time. I just get comfortable. I was ready for another 10 years as police chaplain on the Gold Coast. I had a police car. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how long it took me to get a nice all-wheel drive, beautiful police car? I had an office on the seventh floor of police headquarters, Surface Paradise, looked at the whales out on the on the, pretty good. In the afternoon, I'd go down to the water police and go out in the police boat and um, patrols. I had a helicopter to go up into. Police helicopter. That was pretty good. I, I loved being a full-time police chaplain in the Gold Coast. I absolutely loved it. I loved Marion Valley, my monastery. I could be there forever. I loved it. I loved the mass. I loved the people. I loved doing Marion processions, benediction, 
all these beautiful devotions. I loved um, giving talks to retreatants. I loved all that. Loved it. Now I'm on Mulcanya Forbes. <laughs> it's different. All that's gone. And I just had to go pack up and go. All the plans are gone. Totally different, different way of life. So the only way you can do it is by saying yes with that obedience. And with that comes joy because it really is something that if you, if you don't have that in your life, really, really hard. I don't know if you guys realise that, but it's really hard to know what to do. You've got to have direction. And that's why our Lord founded the church here, gave us a pope, gave us his body of Christ, allowed us to become members of his body of Christ so we can have direction in our faith and in our lives so we can say, oh, yeah, I'm going the right way. I am doing the right thing. All we need to do is to be a bit generous and be prepared to say, well, I didn't have this planned, but God looks like he's dragging me that way. Oh, let's have a look what's down there. <laughs> Just, but we don't do it. Do remember, oh, remember the prophet Jonah? What did he do? Again, he was called to go and preach to the Ninevites. So what did he just say? uh they're going to kill me. I can't preach them. I'm getting on a boat and going the opposite direction. God will never get me. He was wrong. <laughs> Had he just made it easy and said, yes, I'll go to Nineveh, Lord. If you want me to Nineveh, I'll go to Nineveh. But he didn't. But the Lord got him eventually. So, dear friends, I'll conclude my talk with um, just an exhortation, I suppose, that I would say to you, don't be afraid to grab hold of the Lord and be prepared to step out, even if you don't know what's there. Because that's how Pete became St Peter. That's how Frank became St Francis. <laughs> if you look at the lives of the saints, that's what they did. They... They launched out. They followed the Lord. They went out of their comfort zone. They said yes, and they were prepared to keep saying yes. One yes is not enough. You've got to keep saying yes, 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 every single day. And never block yourself in and never say, oh, God wouldn't want me to do that. Who do you think you are? Don't tell God what he wants of you. You know, uh, I did that to one lady and I don't think she ever recovered. She said, um, she said to me, uh, I said, look, you come back to church and, and you know, come and pray. And, said, and, you know, she said, oh, I lived a bad life. I've done, uh, I've done a lot of sins. I said, God will forgive you your sins. God will have you back. He wants you back. And she said, no, nah, God would never have me back. So I genuflected in front of her like that. <laughs> And, and I said, well, you must be God. If you know what God's going to say, I'll, I'll bow to you, ma'am. <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. <laughs> Think about what you're saying. God's got a plan for you. He created you for a reason. He created you to know, love and serve him. In which way 
You have to find that out. But don't tell him in which way he's called you to, to live out your vocation. Be open. Let him sort of guide you down that path or open up that door. That's really, really important because so many people today practice their faith on their terms, not God's terms. Really, really important. It's, it's selfishness that's putting you number one. Everything else is, goes around you. And that's a philosophy of the Enlightenment that places what you think, I think, therefore I am. You are the centre of the universe. What you think, everything else has got to conform with your mind, including God. Whereas the proper way to think is that we, your mind, your body, your whole life, has to conform with God and with God's will. God's will be done. God bless you and may you receive all the blessings that you need in these coming days that you've got left. May you never give up. Don't sell yourself short. God doesn't make junk and God loves you and he's got a purpose for you. Never give up. Keep going forward and keep following the Lord always. Thank you. God bless you. That was Bishop Columba Macbeth Green with St. Peter, the First Pope. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.